like keto. Good morning. Okay, so um, have you guys thought about what we should do for the rest of the semester? You should have, because otherwise we're just going to go for the really long novels. I think we should do the easy stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but really long novels are always easy, right? They just take a long time. No, they're, they're exciting, they're fun. The financier is just <coughs> great. It's the first of a trilogy. Can you go by? It's the first of a trilogy of novels um, by Theodore Dreiser. Do people know who Dreiser is? Is this? <coughs> Dreiser is one of the great um, early 20th century American novelists. And um, he's most famous for Sister Carrie and also for a novel called... Um, an American Tragedy, which was made into a movie called A Place in the Sun, which is referred to in a song by The Clash. So do you guys know who The Clash are? Yeah. Yeah, you do. <laughs> you, always, you always know antique rock and roll. Um, do other people not know who The Clash are? Okay, good. Do you know, Ian? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. All right, good. The only band that matters. Um, I just Someone found... No, it's Clash. No, I say that about Talking Heads, but that, that was the Clash's slogan, was the only band that matters. That's what it said on my Clash t-shirt, London, my London Calling t-shirt. Yeah, if you don't know the Clash, you should know the Clash. They were fantastic. Um, really, totally, utterly fantastic. The only band that matters, really. Well, there are other bands that matter, like Talking Heads and The Grateful Dead. Okay, um, so... Dreiser was a great early 20th century novelist. Sister Carrie, is that a name, a title that's familiar? Okay, Sister Carrie is one of the great 20th century American novels. Dreiser is actually really easy to read, but he does write at great length. And The Financier is the first of what's called the Frank Cooperwood trilogy, and it's about a guy named Frank Cooperwood who makes and loses fortunes. The other two novels are The Titan and The Stoic. And he's based on Yerkes of the Yerkes, or Yerkes of the Yerkes Observatory, that is um, a huge robber baron of the late 19th and early 20th century. And it's a fascinating novel about um, money, and it belongs to the vein of novels. So I should just tell you this because we have they're on the on the um, aspirational syllabus, which is obviously not the syllabus that we're following, but on the aspirational syllabus, it there are a bunch of novels which are belong to the mode called naturalism. And what naturalism in the novel is the really first movement of, um, oh, Gabby. <laughs> it's not that I don't love hearing the Italian, because I actually really do. The, thank you, the first set of novels that really give you life in its grimness and give you uh, characters whose stories are like uh, are real are realistic in a way that has to do with the slice of death as Alfred Hitchcock sometimes well he didn't call it he called it slice of life some people call it slice of death sorts of stories where you just get grim reality and what it's like really to be a human being in a grim world and so Zola is the most famous of the naturalist novel, novelists and kind of invented the form in a long chronicle of a family that's really messed up. Um, but each novel is about a separate member of the family. It's not about how the family relates to each other. It's not that the family's messed up, which is an old story in novels. Uh, as Tolstoy famously said, anyone know what Tolstoy had to say about families? Beginning of Anna Karenina, famous opening line really good for cultural capital. Do you guys know what cultural capital is? What do you think it is? 
this belongs to this is an issue for this class too. What would you guess cultural capital would mean? You have to guess. Knowing what cultural capital means would be an example of cultural capital. How's that? Yes. Knowing that makes you look good? Yes, exactly. Knowing that makes you look good. And it makes you look good to other people who are impressed by the stuff that you know. So the great works of literature, the great works of art, the canon in general is something that those who are familiar with those things have cultural capital, which is to say they know a lot about the culture in the capital C meaning of culture, not the anthropological meaning of culture, but the culture where you're supposed to get cultured. And by knowing that, you look well-educated and therefore in tune with the um, with, with the leaders of the culture around you. So it's the place where education and power, cultural power, power over those in the same community or society as you come together. So it's in religious contexts, it would be, first of all, being able to read. That's true in the West that basically there's something, do people know what the phrase benefit of clergy means? So if you were accused, well, the partner had benefit of clergy. If you were accused of a capital crime or if you were convicted of a capital crime in medieval days, that is like the days of Chaucer, and you could prove that you could read, then you wouldn't be executed because it, then you had what was called benefit of clergy because literacy was thought or was essentially something that was confined to um, those who were taught to read by the church because the church was grooming them to be further clerics and to serve the church, and the clergy couldn't be executed. They had a privilege. So benefit of clergy was literacy. And literacy was cultural capital. If you could read in the Middle Ages, you were regarded as of a much higher class than if you couldn't. And most people couldn't. 90% of the people during the time that the partner's tale takes place could not read. So literacy is cultural capital. Um, and essentially anything that shows that you know more than what other people know is cultural capital. Cultural capital becomes really interesting and wonderful and strange when it when what you get are a lot of intersecting or overlapping cultures. So if you just think about the stuff that your cool friends know, um, if you think about the dank memes that you haven't yet become familiar with, it's like you feel better when you understand what that meme is and then you can hold it over other people. All of that is cultural capital. So it happens on a microscopic sphere, it happens on a macroscopic sphere. The way it happens on a macroscopic sphere is that if you have a building named after you at Lincoln Center, you've got a whole lot of cultural capital. As you probably know, the Cokes have several buildings named after them at Lincoln Center. So they've used real money to get cultural capital and to have um, plazas and buildings and so on named after them. And the idea is that they are leaders of high culture and there is a nexus of culture and power. And that nexus of culture and power is also something that universities sell. That's one reason. I don't think it's the reason. In fact, I think it's not the reason to get a good education. I think the reason to get a good education is because it will make your life better in itself, intrinsically will make your life better. But the extrinsic value of a good education is that you rub elbows with other people who have good educations. So there's a whole lot of cultural knowledge that people learn only because it is, a, it is an impressive thing to know. And the cultural knowledge which is impressive to know, the point is that it's impressive. It impresses others. It gives you credit with others to go back to the language that we were using in Smith and in Mandeville. But the credit that you get is not itself money credit, which is what, uh, what um, financial capital is. It's cultural capital. So a famous example of this sociologically 
um, someone did a study of the difference between class in France and class in the U.S. And class in the U.S. is um, very strongly linked to wealth. That is, people who have money are higher class in the U.S. than people who don't have money. In France, that's not true at all. Class is linked to education. So poor people who have gone to the best schools are regarded as higher class than rich people who have not gone to the best schools but who are self-made, for example. If you think about a movie like There Will Be Blood, that movie is about the way being a kind of self-made person gives you high status in the U.S., though it would not give you high status, certainly wouldn't give you high status in England, where, you, where new money, um, do people know the phrase new money? Is that, what does it mean, Ari? Um, so it's like people who just earn a lot of money and who like sort of transition from the lower income back to the higher income back and sort of are figuring out how to spend it and save it. Yeah, but even if they know how to spend it and save it, if it's new money, then old money sniffs at it. It's like, well, yes, um, Jeff Bezos has a ton of money or Bill Gates has a ton of money, and that's nice, but it's not old money. It's not money which has been, um, which, which has been sanctified by time. So if you think about, I mean, that's a really interesting distinction, new money versus old money, yeah. Great Gatsby, like the whole East Nice, yeah, yeah. How many people know the Great Gatsby? Okay, so yeah, what's the difference between East Egg and West Egg? Daisy and Tom. Yes. Yeah, what's her face in the man? Um, yeah, that was a great TV show. What's her face in the man? I love that show. Go on. Um, they're old money. Uh huh. Tom, Tom Buchanan and Daisy Tom is Buchanan. Definitely yeah. old money, and then like she kind of married in, and then um, Gatsby's new money. So he had throws all these parties, and so Buchanan's like new money. Yeah. Yeah, and convinces ultimately convinces Daisy that the new money is not the same thing as the old money. Um, so if you think about it in, in the terms that we've had in this class, this is, we're still thinking about the solace, but if you're thinking about this in the terms that we've um, been talking about in this class, is that a paradox, the difference between new and old money? So remember the, the proverb that Karl Marx, this, this was actually, uh, Vespasian was the first person who said this, but the proverb that Karl Marx quotes, which is, pecunia non olet, or money doesn't smell. Um, he said that in the context of the question whether to tax the use of toilets in Rome. And his nephew said, that's a disgusting way to make money. And he and Vespasian's answer was, "There's money in urine, but urine doesn't smell. Uh, but but it doesn't smell. Um, so you get it. You get the money out of urine because people are using the toilets, but it doesn't smell. So that seems like if money does anything. And we were talking about money laundering the other day. Um, the whole point about money is money is pure exchange value. How then can there be a difference between new and old money?" Or what would make such a difference possible? Everyone gets the Gatsby distinction, right? That Gatsby comes from a family that's had money for a long time. I'm mean, sorry, not Gatsby. Uh, Tom Buchanan comes from a family that's, that's had money for a long time. Gatsby has made money through being a gangster. It's also what the Godfather movies are about. If you've seen the whole trilogy, what happens in the Godfather movies? I mean, it's a cartel, and it's sort of, it shows how the cartel sort of gets passed down from one generation to the other. And it's like shows the transition of the whole um, from like an older generation to a new generation. Yeah, and what Godfather Three is about is there is that the Corleones are trying to buy their way into high society and into an honest living. It's also what The Wire is about. If oh, you guys haven't seen The Wire, is that right? Are you the class that no one had seen The Wire in? I know what The Wire is. But... Oh, it's so good. Your cultural capital is so low because you haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> part of what The Wire is about is, is the character of Idris Elba, who plays Stringer Bell, who's the most, one of the most compelling characters on The Wire. And he is the person 
the one of the head drug suppliers in Baltimore. He's the one who has the most vision for the future. And what he wants to do is get out of buying and selling drugs, which is what has made him and his and Avon Barksdale and various people around them very, very rich, into real estate. And um, so his idea, again, is that the new money is going to be laundered into legitimate money where and into legitimate enterprises. So he's the Gatsby figure. In a whole lot of ways, he's the Gatsby figure in The Wire. So when you watch The Wire, which it's your assignment to do this summer, everyone will get extra credit for this class if they promise to watch The Wire this summer. Yes? No? <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> yes? No, you're not going to watch The Wire? Okay, sorry guys, no extra credit. <laughs> Your honesty is a real mistake here. Um, but it's good. Um, if you watch The Wire, when you watch The Wire, think of Stringer Bell as the Gatsby-like character, because, because in a lot of ways he really is. And at any rate, the, I, the, just think about the paradox of the idea of new money versus old money. So if you're talking about gangsters, if you're talking about The Godfather, what happens in Godfather 3 is that the Corleones are trying to buy their way into respectability. Do you remember how? No. Do you, do you, have you seen it, the, God, the Godfather 3? I haven't seen The Godfather 3. Oh, it's, it's the movie that made Zoe Koppel famous. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, don't they like, try to like, invest in like, the Vatican Bank or something? Like yes. That? So what they're going to do is they're going to invest in the Catholic Church. And by investing in the Catholic Church, um, what better way to launder money than in the blood of the Lamb, which is essentially the plan. Um, and so if their money is going to the church, then it becomes as different from money made out of crime it, as it could possibly be, or it looks as different from money made out of crime as it could possibly look. So, but that makes sense because money that needs laundering is money that can be traced back to criminal activities. It's only one generation or one iteration away from criminal activity. But what about the distinction, what about the idea that someone like Bill Gates could not be part of the social register in New York City, even if he lived in New York City. Um, his money was made more or less honestly, as honestly as any tech company's money is made. Yeah. I think that there is a fundamental difference between income and wealth. Yeah. And uh, you know, income being the liquid part and wealth being more subtle. And I think, you know, although it looks paradoxical, I think that there is a genuine, um, I'm not sorry, just will come up, you know, that the old money is different to new money in the sense that it's more settled, it's invested in a variety of things. I mean, and then people are nicer. The old money people are nicer, and there's a matter of actual fact. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I should, I'll take that back, but I'll just say that. Okay. don't think so. <laughs> They're certainly more racist. Are they? Okay. Old money people, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about in Turkey, like we have some new money people. Okay, I'm talking about the U.S. and England, and, and which is where I know. In my country, like just the old money people, and of course they have accumulated privilege, so it's encrusted. And if you want to think about the, the, the thing that's being laundered was laundered long ago, which might make it seem more disgusting or less yeah. disgusting depending on your. But in immediate contact, it feels less disgusting, although when you think about it, it might be more disgusting. But it, it's just to do with having invested in museums, like so, you know, and then, you know, so it makes a. Um, and, and, and another like me sort of just if they're a part of the infrastructure of the city. I'm, I'm thinking about Istanbul that they're just like they you know they have, although the new money is, is they, they build skyscrapers. I mean like there's a huge they build skyscrapers that are really unsightly and then yeah. sort of just the um, new money does the new yeah money does. and then you know, so there is actually a very perceptible. It's as if they're not invested in society or they haven't decided that they're a part of the city yet. They could go somewhere else. Yeah. And then, and, uh, uh, so there, there's that sense of investment in the city or in, you know, it's an actual place. Yeah. As opposed to, so there's the difference between liquidity and settlement. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's the bourgeois turning themselves into so-called feudal land. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, you know, so they kind of become more like lords yeah. rather than, you know, money makers. 
and that's, that's yeah. different. Yeah, or, or, or an example that we can talk about right now in the U.S., which is very vivid, is the Sacklers, right? So who are the Sacklers? The Oxycontin people. Yeah, so they're the um, essentially the owners of um, Purdue Pharma, and they are the ones who pushed Oxycontin um, insanely and evilly and viciously, and the... Um, when there was lots of evidence that that people were uh, becoming addicted and dying, this was this was this came out recently in a lawsuit, but this was years ago. Um, they didn't care, and they were they had all sorts of strategies for. Um, they they called it what did they call it? Um, both end strategies or something, but that's not right. Um, but. They were marketing OxyContin and also marketing um, drugs to treat addiction to OxyContin. So the more OxyContin that they managed to market, the more they could also treat, they could market the, um, the addiction-treating drugs um, for people who were hooked on OxyContin. So they were making money at both ends, and they were very happy about this. And as you guys probably know, um, OxyContin deaths or overdose deaths um, are now, for people under age 50, more people die from OxyContin than die in car crashes. And a lot of people die in car crashes. So that's really shocking. Um, I had a student here who died uh, ODing on OxyContin. So that's a terrible thing. And um, what they're trying to do is buy their, or what they did try to do, what they did successfully for a long time, even when they, before they started doing this thing, because they're not that new um, a rich family, is they gave money to various, various institutions. They gave money especially to Harvard, where there's a Sackler Museum, and has been for decades. And um, now there are various museums that are turning down their money and returning their money. So that's an example. Their money is probably legal. Um, they're losing lawsuits, but they're probably not going to be criminally indicted. Um, so their money is probably legal, but it is definitely new. And it therefore does keep the traces of where it comes from. And so what cultural capital is about is making yourself into a person who looks like an inheritor of the tradition, of the, of the high culture's tradition, of wealthy culture's tradition, let's say, of aristocratic culture's tradition. So cultural capital is a way of giving yourself the kind of culture that goes back historically to an aristocracy. That is, that the kind of art that it's high cultural capital to like originally would be the kind of art that patrons in Florence or Venice or Rome or, or even Amsterdam, although that's new money, is Amsterdam. 17th century Amsterdam is all new money. Not new anymore, but new then. Um, all of that is um, a way of saying it's not just money but it is what the money actually symbolizes aristocracy. Rather than being an aristocrat proving that you're rich, which we know from the gambler, it does no such thing. Being an aristocrat it doesn't imply in any way that you're rich, but rather than even the narrator of the gambler is an aristocrat, but rather than being an aristocrat proving that, that you're rich, being rich allows you to buy something like the heritage or allows you to be a representative of a historical heritage if you use that money to learn the high culture tradition. And the high culture tradition is cultural capital. However, that's only the first um, way of talking about cultural capital um, because cultural capital is true of all cultures. There's cultural capital. And the, um, those cultures include um, the grunge rock culture. Anyone who knows more, anyone who's more expert than you on um, a cultural formation that it's good to be expert in, 
um, among among in your subculture, and all subcultures have have cultural capital. That would be a way of putting it. So that people who've been to CBGBs, they're really cool, and we're not worthy of them because they actually went to CBGBs and they saw the Ramones there, and so that's cultural capital. If you saw, do you guys know who the Ramones are? Sort of. Okay. Do you know what CBGBs is? What's CBGBs? Oh, no, 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 it's good cultural capital. Try. Yeah. It was a punk club in New York City. Yeah, CBGB, OMFUG, and OMFUG. It closed a few years ago. Yeah, it did. There was someone at Brandeis who was actually, their <coughs> family was trying to keep it open. And um, they put a lot of money into it and did keep it open for a few years. And uh, they asked me to write a letter um, in favor of CBGBs and OMFUG, and I did, which helped a little bit. Um, so they were the place where all the great um, new wave and no wave bands of the 70s and 80s played. Um, Talking Heads um, in Life During Wartime, is that a song people know? Yeah, do you know the line in Life During Wartime that I'm thinking of? This ain't the mud club or CBGBs. I ain't got time for that now. So if you ever listen to Life During Wartime, which is one of the great songs and which will give you a lot of cred, or as we say, cultural capital, um, then you will understand what that line means. This ain't the Mud Club, which is another um, famous punk venue. This ain't the Mud Club or CBGBs. I ain't got time for that now. Talking Heads played in CBGBs, and they were really weird because they would come in just wearing like jeans and shirts instead of um, looking like other punk bands and um, everyone just fell for that immediately like wow that is so cool they're just wearing like jeans and t-shirts as they play um, alright so subcultures also all have cultural capital and the idea again is that money in a way is too raw because it doesn't make distinctions that you nevertheless are are valuable. Does that make sense to people? Because that would be that would be the the heart of the matter. That just being distinguished as a term of praise, like um, the very distinguished work of X or Y, the very distinguished um, leader of the British Parliament. Um, being distinguished is something that has cultural value. It means that you stand out from the crowd. So the word distinguished as a pure adjective, as something, as a term of praise, think about how strange it is that the word distinguished is a term of praise, but it is a term of praise, right? Everyone's heard it used that way as a term of praise. So if distinguished is a term of praise, it means that they, have, they stand out from others. And so the idea is that money dissolves everything. Anyone who has money is worth as much as anyone else who has money. If your value is simply your bank account, um, the, the amount of money that you have, some of you probably know since you brought up salary versus capital, Jeff Bezos takes the same salary now that he took when he started Amazon or that he's taken for the last 15 years. Do you guys know that? How much he makes a year? His salary is $87,000 a year. And that's for the richest man in the world, that's not a big salary. And the point is that for him it's not about the salary. And um, he has all this money, but he doesn't take it as salary. And one way of distinguishing yourself is not having to um, take money as, uh, as salary because you already have money. But the idea is that if all rich people are alike, and this gets us back to the cultural capital of knowing the first sentence of Anna Karenina, which is that all happy families are alike, all unhappy families, every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. That's the cultural capital I have now given you. And if you want to pay me for it, that would be great. But no need, no need. Um, I'll just turn around and however much money piles up behind my back, that'll be fine. Um, that's cultural capital, knowing that that's the beginning of Anna Karenina is cultural capital. All happy families are, light, are alike. 
every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way, and that's what novels are about. At any rate, if all rich people are alike because they have money and because what's defining them is that they're rich, then the question is how do they compete when whoever has most money is not really what's going to make them most respected. To some extent it is in the United States, but the U.S. is actually an outlier that way. The U.S. is, that's why the U.S. is considered crass um, by so many other cultural cultures or um, other national cultures. It is crass, if you think about it, to make money the arbiter of social value. But then what do you make the arbiter of social value? No culture makes goodness the arbiter of social value. No culture says, what a good person that poor person is. They are clearly a leader. Um, we sometimes pay lip service to that. That would be great if people did that, but goodness is not the, um, not the arbiter of cultural value So what it, or, or value within a society, within a culture. So if money is crass, but goodness is just not going to cut it, what do you do? Well, you do education. You do um, something like um, cultural internalization, knowledge of um, things that are great, knowledge which is in some sense useless. It may be really useful to know how finance works, and to be able to make a lot of money by knowing how finance works. It may be useful to know um, all sorts of things about like how oil drilling works, um, but it's not useful to know, and now we're back in Kantian territory about usefulness and in Smithian territory about utility and usefulness. It's not actually useful to know that Rembrandt would never do a brush stroke like this. Connoisseurship, saying this this is not a Rembrandt-style brushstroke. Um, that's not something useful to know unless people are looking to buy Rembrandts. So there can be a crass use of your knowledge of whether something is a Rembrandt painting or not, but it's only because people want to buy Rembrandts, and they want real Rembrandts. Why do they want real Rembrandts? Why is, that, why is it worthwhile to be known to be the owner of a real Rembrandt because somehow the Rembrandt has value which is not financial value, but which can be monetized. And it's the thing that has value. It's not really use value because there's not much you can do with a Rembrandt except look at it or show it to people. But you can sell it so it has a kind of exchange value, but it only has exchange value because what, the question is, why does it have exchange value? So again, remember that something, and this is what we were saying about gold, something can only have exchange value if somewhere in its history there's a use value to it. So um, when you're talking about money, ultimately the use value of money is its exchange value. But why would a Rembrandt painting or a Giorgione painting. Remember, we talked about La Tempesta. Um, why would such a painting as that have exchange value? What use value does it have that gives it exchange value? So you could say that it has pure exchange value, but why not just use money instead? <clears throat> In other words, you can't say a painting is money, can you? Yeah, but then they wouldn't have to be auctioning off different paintings. In other words, they wouldn't show the paintings, they wouldn't auction um, a particular painting, they wouldn't say this is a Van Gogh versus this is a Rembrandt versus this is a Callow. All right. Doesn't it also sort of like create value to, like, to how others perceive your taste and your like, culture? Yes. Your education and your knowledge. Exactly. So what you're doing is you are showing that you val that if you buy a Rembrandt, you're showing that you value a Rembrandt. And if you're showing that you value a Rembrandt, what you've done, you're showing how much you value it by paying all this money for it. And so 
you could say some of that, if you're completely cynical, if you're completely cynical, which Ari is not being, if you're completely cynical, it's an investment. That is, you're buying this Rembrandt because you know that someone else is going to want to buy the Rembrandt from you, or you think you know that, that someone else is going to want to buy the Rembrandt from you, and you'll make money off of it. Yeah. I also think that it's, a con I guess, a connected idea is that it is a display of wealth. So, like, that's a display of cultural capital. This is a display, like, it's like the potlatch where they would yes. give away or destroy expensive things. This is putting all of a whole lot of money into something with no use value. Yeah. Yeah, so it's putting a whole lot of money into something with almost no use value. All you can do is look at it, which is pleasant to look at while you're eating your breakfast. It's nice to look at the supper of Emmaus while you're having your oatmeal um, and thinking about how much better the supper of Emmaus probably was. Um, but beyond that, this is what Smith is saying. Beyond that, its use value is very little, except as a display of the fact that you have put a lot of exchange value into something with very little use value, which then becomes a display of taste, of devotion to um, high culture, therefore of your own culture, of your own um, knowledge, of your own um, connoisseurship, of your own education, of your own background, and so on. Does it actually have that much? Is it still worth $40 million that you can show that not only do you have $40 million, but you also have good taste? Probably not. There are a lot better, you know, think about what you could do with that $40 million. You could, like, um, spend all your time in VR doing really fun things on other planets and still have tons of money to spare for other people. You could spend all your time at amusement parks having a gas and never having to worry about doing anything else and just doing amusement park rides. There's a lot more fun that you could have with $40 million than telling people that you have $40 million. And that's the most that the Rembrandt can do for you as far as use value goes is, it can, well, it, let's say it can do several things. It can be a conspicuous display of wealth. That's the potlatch aspect of spending $40 million on a painting and um, being known to be the person who owns the painting. So it can be a conspicuous display of wealth. And that's a, it's a hugely conspicuous display of wealth because it costs you $40 million to do that. So on the one hand, it's wow, that's a display of wealth. On the other hand is there's no way it's worth $40 million to display the fact that you have $40 million or there are other ways of displaying it like just getting on the Forbes for the Fortune, uh, the Forbes 400 list. Um, so what part of what makes it a display of wealth is that it's not the most efficient way to display your wealth. You can display your wealth far more impressively not by buying a Rembrandt. So that adds a little bit to it. This is a little bit like what's, what we were looking at Smith saying yesterday about how if the credit you got for self-command was greater than the debit that, of the pain that you had to go through in order to show self-command, then everyone would want to um, suffer so that they could show self-command because they'd come out ahead. Um, same with the $40 million painting, and therefore that's what makes it like a potlatch. It's a conspicuous display of wealth, part of the conspicuousness of which is that there are exponentially greater ways of that that wealth can pay you back than through its display. So if you destroy wealth, you're showing that you could afford to destroy wealth. However you destroyed a bunch of wealth, was it worth it to show that you could destroy that wealth by destroying it? No. If it were worth it, it wouldn't be a potlatch. Um, you know, why not light your cigar with a counterfeit or with Monopoly money? Um, you come out way ahead if you lit your cigar with Monopoly money or with fake money, with money that was counterfeit and that only at a distance looked like a $50 bill. So um, it is a display of wealth. So why do you do it? 
Well, because you really love Rembrandt. It's worth it. This is the reason I got rich, is that I fell in love with this Rembrandt, and I decided I was going to make a lot of money to buy this Rembrandt, um, that I would do anything to own this Rembrandt. So you spend your life working really hard, and then you buy the Rembrandt. And um, it's because you love it, and that's great. But <laughs> the fact that you love it has some payback, which is that other people love the fact that you love it. People tell stories about the person who, as a child... Actually, there was a story like this I just read. Did you read this just the other day? Um, I think it came out like a week ago. Um, a story about a woman who, when she in 1907, when she was a teenager, she heard about the Gutenberg Bible, and um, she loved books, and she was not a wealthy person but um, she really wanted a Gutenberg Bible and she spent the next 40 years looking to get a Gutenberg Bible and I mean it wasn't that every day she would look in her inbox was there a Gutenberg Bible on sale it's not that she would check eBay every day um, it's that she started looking to get a Gutenberg Bible when she was like 20 and she finally got one when she was 75. I mean, she pursued a single Bible for like 50 years. And finally, when she was 75, she got it. It was like her life's goal to get this Gutenberg Bible. Do people know what the Gutenberg Bible is? A little cultural capital for you. God, you guys are making out like bandits on the cultural capital um, uh, <laughs> trail here. The first printed book in the West was printed by Johannes Gutenberg. Um, the question, it's the first book printed with movable type. So if you've ever heard the phrase the Gutenberg Revolution, or if you know there's Project Gutenberg, which is where you can get um, lots of free public domain e-texts. And um, Gutenberg was the person who, in, who invented, essentially invented and introduced what's called movable type to the manufacture of books. So up until the 15th century, all books were copied out by hand. And if you owned a book, someone had copied it from, um, from another copy of the book. There were books. They were bound. They were in covers and so on. But every single book was hand copied. And so if you wanted a copy of a book, you had to, you had to go to a scribe who would then copy that book out for you. The reason that the burning of the Library of Alexandria was so terrible and so many books were lost is because the Library of Alexandria was the place where there were copies of most books that existed in the world, but often the only copies because most books only existed in single copies because you wrote a book and maybe some people read it, but they would just, it would just pass from hand to hand. So when we talk about ancient books, when we talk about the works of Horace or of Catullus or the Iliad or whatever, those books were hand copied. And the more important the book, the more people copied it out, but they were all hand copied. And only, and if you look at medieval books and illuminated manuscripts of the kind that the library has here, those are also done by hand. They're hand copied. So Gutenberg figured out how to print. And so he essentially invented and created the print culture that still exists today, even if it's starting to be displaced by screen culture. Um, but books, newspapers, posters, all of that was invented by Gutenberg in the 14th century, and, or beginning of the 15th century. And the first book that he printed was a Bible, which makes sense. Um, people know what the word Bible means in Greek? Book, like bibliotheque in, in French. Yeah, the, the Bible is basically the book. Um, so the first book that he printed was, of course, the book. And a Gutenberg Bible is therefore the single most valuable printed book in history. And um, there are, I'm not sure how many copies there are, um, fewer than the first folio, I believe. Um, Brandeis has a first folio, which is the first collected edition of Shakespeare's works, and there are about 210 of them. 
212 of them in the world. Um, there are fewer Gutenberg Bibles, and the Gutenberg Bible is also a much more beautiful book. So he printed this book, and it's like the single most important book in the history of printing. If you're doing the history of printing, a Gutenberg Bible is the holy grail of printing. So this woman spent all this time trying to get a Gutenberg Bible. She finally got it, and she then gave it to the Huntington Library. This was in 1950. Um, and their Gutenberg, it's, uh, the Huntington Library is a major collection of books in Los Angeles, and their Gutenberg comes from um, this woman who had her heart set on it all her life and finally got it. Um, so that's amazing that she did that, and she obviously didn't do it for the money. Um, she did it for the wonderfulness of it. And so now, 60 years later, 70 years later, articles are appearing on the web about how, about how she got this Gutenberg Bible. So she didn't do it so we would remember her in 70 years. She did it because she was in love with the Bible, and with that Bible, with that book. And so we admire her for that. So cultural capital is partly what it is, like the potlatch, because it isn't monetizable. And that's what old money is. Old money, in a sense, is money that has value because it's old, not because of its face value. Not because you can buy stuff with it, but because it represents the family that possesses it. And that gives the family cultural importance. It makes the family part of the culture. No one heard of Bill Gates 40 years ago, but um, everyone heard of the Rockefellers 40 years ago, or the Rothschilds, to take a name, which is, um, which is still much abused. Um, so old money is valuable because of its cultural importance or the cultural importance that it symbolizes. And whereas new money is just is is crass, so it's the difference between crassness and culture, crassness and high culture. Um, that is part of what the naturalist novels are about, because the naturalist novels, a lot of them, like the movie There Will Be Blood, are about new money. Um, so. Uh, we will talk about The Gambler on Monday, but just quickly, how much time do we have? Oh, good, we have a lot of time, three minutes. Um, so here are your choices. We'll, we'll definitely do The Gambler next week. Um, and then um, we could do um, Colson Whitehead's nonfiction book about gambling, The Noble Hustle. Um, have you guys read him? Do you know him? The Underground Railroad? No? National Book Award winner? Yeah. Yes, I have read. Sorry. Yeah. All right. Did you like it? Yeah, a lot. Okay. Um, I think he has a sequel coming out, just about to come out. Mm -hmm. um, so he um, he wrote a, a kind of journalistic nonfiction book called The Noble Hustle about gambling. Um, there is Zola's um, novel Money, which is great. Um, we could do that. Why don't we do one naturalist novel? Um, does that make sense to people? So I would suggest either... So I, I think we should do Zola's Money if we're going to do a, a naturalist novel. Um, so let's do Zola's Money, and then we'll do... Um, we can skip The Financier, even though it's great and you should read it. Um, we'll skip Oh, Pioneers, since Money itself is a, is a long novel. But we'll definitely do The Maltese Falcon. Um, that's actually kind of where we should be. All right, why don't we say we'll do... Um, We'll do The Gambler um, Monday and maybe next Wednesday and then start talking about money next Thursday um, and the week after that, and then we'll do The Maltese Falcon and we'll be sort of caught up and sort of not. Okay, does that sound good for the next little while or do people have other desires, wishes, ideas, hopes, dreams? The thing you took this class for, yes? How long was the Wilson Whitehead book? Um, <laughs> shorter than money, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> no, I was just wondering, because possibly could we use that as a, for a paper? Yeah. Read it, so. Would people prefer to do Whitehead to um, Zola? 
So I'll just tell you, Whitehead is a, it's a kind of journalistic account of um, gambling culture. Um, and um, it's totally fun. Um, it's not deep, but it's fun. And um, whereas Money is Zola, who's one of the great writers of the 19th century, um, it's a page turner. It's a potboiler, as they say. Um, it's definitely a page turner and a really interesting novel. But the question is, do you want to spend more time? I don't know. They're both kind of about gambling. Um, do you want to do both? What do people want to do? Speak now or forever hold your peace. Whitehead, how many people? Uh, Zola, how many people? <laughs> both, how many people? All right, let's do Whitehead then. Uh, we won't do Zola. So um, what you should do then is start, is read it for, let's say, next Thursday. And... Uh, We'll be talking about gambling then. And there's also this essay by Ainsley that um, called Money is MacGuffin, which is about gambling, but we'll also do. Okay, I'll send this out um, on Latte. Um, but then, so you guys got, got spared in the nick of time from reading Zola and got to read Whitehead instead. All right, so Colson Whitehead and um, Dostoevsky for next week, and also this Ainsley essay, which I'll get to you, and then we'll do the Maltese Falcon. All right. Really? Yeah, it just makes me upset that, like, just to think, that it doesn't matter what I find. Wait, so you, do you not go to the gardener? Yes, I do. I mean, like, like, I have, but I, I do. Yeah, they will send me, they will get There's a part of me that resents the fact that it's a private museum. Yeah. By, yeah. And then in here it's clearly so the National Museum is still we we don't not go to it because it's a national because it, it's actually got rid of the some of the distinction things. It's it's it's, it's, it's you know, sort of now it's a, it's a national they're, they're presented as even like global things that are like that we share as opposed to it being something that's imposed distinction on so and so. Yeah. And then also in my uh, uh, mother-in-law works at the DPL, she's the foundation's financial thing. And, and, and the thing is people give money and they expect their names to be engraved on stone. Right, yeah, exactly. Perpetuity. Yeah. And one thing she has to tell them, like, is that like, perpetuity means 20 years. Yeah, same as uh, Avery Fisher Hall, which is no, lo which is no longer Avery Fisher Hall. Uh, so when, once you give that money, knowing that actually perpetuity means... 20 uh, years. 20 yeah. Years. yeah. Uh, you're really, it's, it is actually a public act. It's like, I think, you know, sort of, um, I mean, it, it's, so, I mean, I don't resent that. I think like giving to the BPL is a great thing. I mean, yeah. I don't, you know, I think it's a good, it's a wonderful thing to do. Yeah. I don't think it's a, and sometimes there are funny ideas, like they only want tons of money just to be spent on Assyriology, and there's yeah. not, not enough people to spend that money. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fascinating...